0: I'm Trevor Allred, and this is the 1888 Center podcast. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to storytelling. Through creative collaboration, our programs are designed to provide tools for community innovation. This episode was produced at 1888 Center, located in the historic district of Old Town Orange, California.
1: Welcome to a live edition of the 1888 Center podcast. I'm Ryan Gaddis, novelist, former creative writing professor at Chapman University, tolerator of small animals, and your guest host. I'm joined tonight by Jeff Manaw, whom I should really tell you something about. He's the New York Times best-selling author of A Burglar's Guide to the City from FSG, which was optioned for television by CBS Studios. He's also a freelance writer covering design, crime, infrastructure, and more for publications ranging from the New York Times Magazine to Business Week, as well as being a a former senior editor at Dwell and a contributing editor at Wired UK. He runs the completely brilliant website, Building Blog, which isn't spelled how it sounds. It's B-L-D-G-B-L-O-G.com, which he launched in 2004 to explore architectural conjecture, urban speculation, and landscape futures and I encourage everyone listening to be as obsessed by it as I am. Please welcome Mr. Jeff Mana. Thanks for having me. So the idea in this interview is to start with easy questions, and then proceed to more invasive, increasingly difficult queries (laughs) before ending with a speed round for no particular reason other than I think it's gonna be amazing. How does that sound? I'm ready. Do you agree, sir? I agree. Okay. I concur. So Jeff, softball question. Okay. Where did you grow up? The internet would not tell me.
2: Oof. That's, uh, that's uh, probably good. Um, <laughs> uh, moved around a lot. I was, I was born outside Chicago. Uh, my dad uh, was a salesman, so we moved about every four years. Uh, so I lived in uh, Cincinnati, uh, rural Wisconsin, mm. in this little town um, with about 4,000 people and uh, where most of my friends, you know, lived on farms, and that kind of thing, and then uh, suburban Philadelphia, Mm. and then I went to college in North Carolina, and then uh, met my soon-to-be wife back in Chicago in grad school and got married in London. So it's kind of hard to say where I grew up, actually, I moved moved around a lot, now I live in Los Angeles.
1: Right on. Did you know what you wanted to be when you were young?
2: Uh, it's sort of. I mean, I, as a kid, I was. I mean, I've always been a pretty enthusiastic individual, so I have a lot of interests, and they, they 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 go all over the place. Um, as a kid, I've I've always I've always written. You know, the, from the pretty much the the minute I discovered how to write, it was something that I wanted to do, and I would fill notebooks up and. You know, I turned in like almost like an entire novella. You know, when I was like nine or ten years old, wow. about a, about a family that got lost in the rainforest. Oh my god! And uh, but what yeah, happened went, to them? Uh, I can't even remember how, what happened <laughs> in the story. To, to be honest, it was, it was too long ago. Although I did build like a paper mache volcano and all these like things that went along with it. Um, so it was, that's it was commitment a to storytelling, multi dimensional storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I wanted to be an archaeologist, and then I wanted to be an astronomer, and, uh, and all all of these different things. But um, writing was kind of like the central thread that held it all together and, and that's what I do now.
1: What's your favorite building in the world? Oof. Uh,
2: that's tricky, although um, I'm, I'm, I'm really obsessed with this the, a building that's kind of notoriously ugly, but it's uh, it's called, 30, it's, well it's not called, but its address is 33 Thomas Street. It's in Manhattan and um, it was allegedly built to uh, survive a nuclear blast. It's a windowless skyscraper that has these huge vents uh, on the outside and it's basically a telephone switching uh, Chamber, Mm -hmm. Um, it 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 has a bit of notoriety now because about two years ago it was discovered that that's where one of these NSA listening posts had been constructed, like deep in the bowels of this crazy windowless skyscraper, um, Mm -hmm. which is like on even on the uh, just looking at it, you know, looks like something from like a villain's lair, like in a Tim Burton Batman movie. Um, But it's actually a surprisingly beautiful building, I think. Uh, You know, it's uh, eerie as as hell. It looks like some sort of, you know, postmodern Dracula's crypt in the middle of Manhattan. Um, It is skyscraper-sized. I don't know the exact number of floors, but um, like the mystery that surrounds it and the fact that it has no windows, but just these huge vents um, makes that a candidate for one of my favorite buildings in the world. But I mean, if you asked me that tomorrow morning, I'd have a different answer probably. But that that one definitely stands out. Gotcha. It would be very tough to break into. Do
1: you recall why the NSA chose that building for a well, listening? Well, it's post?
2: it's it's used by the telephone company, so it's um it's a Verizon owned building now and it was AT&T back in the day when it was constructed. And so basically like, you know, it's it's like the quip about why would you rob banks? It's cuz that's where the money is. Um, you know, the reason why the NSA went there is cuz that's where the phone systems were. Huh. And so it was like going into the 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 heart of the nervous system for the phone network of Manhattan. Where they set up one of their crazy secret rooms, and they were funneling all of the telephone calls and stuff through their own equipment. So it was kind of like, a, yeah, like a federal wiretap on like the entire system of of the phone system of New York.
1: That's not creepy at all. It's pretty creepy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> My gosh. Well, by way of transitioning into our talk more about a burglar's guide to the city. Mm-hmm. How did you first come to know about a man by the name of George Leonidas Leslie?
2: Um, I think it was really just talking with uh, friends of mine who share interest in architecture and heist movies and that kind of thing. Um, and then you know he sort of came up as this legendary figure who mm-hmm. Uh, nobody at the time really, uh, or, or rather, uh, he, he hadn't really been given the kind of exposure that you would expect from a historical figure of, 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 of so much interest. Um, and so by way of introducing who this person was, um, he was a, he trained as an architect in Cincinnati, actually, where, where I, I, I temporarily lived as a kid um, back in the 1860s. And then he moved to New York City. You know, he also, he was a very good student. You know, he had a, the, a, the future was bright for this guy. Um, He moved to New York just in the right time where, you know, he could have gotten a lot of work, um, you know, building mega mansions for the for the ultra rich, for the railroad barons and all the people that were were moving to New York at the time right after the Civil War. Um, But what's interesting is that, yeah, he used his architectural knowledge to found this bank robbery gang. And um, they were eventually behind an estimated 80 percent of all the bank crime in America at the time, which is outrageous. Eight zero. Eight zero percent. Uh, So, four out of every five banks that that were robbed in the U.S. were by this guy's group. And uh, it was all, I mean, I shouldn't say all, but it was very much based in his architectural knowledge because he founded all of these things that we now associate kind of with the cliché of the Hollywood bank robber. Um, you know, where they would build uh, de- like uh, duplicate vaults that they would then practice on. He would do the things like go into a bank and pretend to be opening up an account, but then he would be walking along and, and counting the feet so that he could go home and draw blue, blueprints to, to build the, the, uh, an, a fake interior. Um, he had a, a friend over in Brooklyn that actually let him use her warehouses to, to build these like stage sets to perform burglary uh, on until they got all the crack timing down. And, um, you know, allegedly had a, a, a um, what is it called, a photographic memory. So, you know, he could, he could just memorize the interiors of banks. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, I believe he just sort of came up when, in conversations with friends. Uh, but needless to say, that, you know, he's, that's such an interesting uh, story already. And then also as someone who writes about architecture, the idea that you can kind of weaponize the knowledge of a building and turn it into something that you can then, you know, become the guy who, who breaks into four out of every five banks in America. Uh, that's just a pretty extraordinary biography.
1: Were there any other figures who were in the running for world's greatest 19th century criminal, (laughs) along with Leslie? Uh,
2: I mean, it depends. I'm sure there are some pretty badass 19th century criminals who weren't necessarily burglars. Um, And those weren't the people I wrote about, though. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, there, there were definitely people that I tried to... Um, write about in the book. I mean, in the opening, the, the book opens with George the United Leslie, um, but I try to counteract or or sort of like counterbalance him actually by going into. Um, you know that's the romanticized vision of a burglar and that's the romanticized vision of what it means to be kind of like a super villain mm-hmm. but in reality if you actually look at the kinds of people who become burglars and the kinds of things that happen um, you get very different types of individuals that are attracted to this 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 job so to speak. Such as? Uh, people who get stuck inside drywall uh, people who break into buildings and then can't find their way out so call the police to get rescued <laughs> um, there's people who uh, one guy actually broke into a building, thought there. Was another burglar and was so scared that he called the cops. Um, there are people that you know. There's there's a there's one young guy in uh, I think it was Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so also kind of near where I grew up. Um, but uh, he broke into a veterinarian's office to steal the um, medications and. Uh, but he decided that the best way would be to come in through the ceiling, the roof, uh, and to do so totally naked. And so he had a flashlight in one hand and apparently a hammer in the other. And then he slid down naked through the uh, ventilation shafts until he got stuck and uh, was banging around and, and trying to get out. Uh, and, and apparently when the, when the veterinarians showed up the next day, they thought that there was an animal caught up inside the uh, ventilation system, so they called animal control. <laughs> uh, but it turns out it was just a naked 17-year-old. <laughs> oh, my God. And so, unfortunately, you know, for for um, you know burglars and their reputation, that's the overwhelming majority of stories. Is actually individuals like that, but so it makes a it's a a, a nice counter uh, argument and a and a good example away from George Leonidas Leslie.
1: <laughs> well, now seems a relatively appropriate time to just tell you, I loved your book. Well, thank you. Loved it. Uh, it's phenomenally well researched. I must have read the sections regarding L.A. three times in a row now, Hmm. and I think the reason why it hits me so deeply is that as a crime writer, or certainly as a writer who's very interested in crime and, and folks who take that path, I suppose I find myself focusing very much on the deed, on humanity associated with that choice, legality, but your book actually forced me to also see space as integral to act, not simply as setting, but perhaps hiding place, or an obstacle, or even the crime itself. So if you'll permit me, I don't uh, wish to ask how the idea of Burglar's Guide first hit you, but I want to ask a two-part question, and, and, it's, and it's simply this. When did you know it could
2: be a book, and then how did you research it? Okay, sure. Um, well, yeah, I guess, I mean, you know, I, my background is really writing about architecture and design in cities. And so what interests me so much about burglary is that it's really how people use architecture. And it's also, it's it, it's explicitly an architectural crime. Um, there literally can't be burglary if you don't have buildings. Yeah. So, you know, if you mug somebody on a sidewalk or, or, or if you pickpocket, you know, you're not a burglar. You have to be inside a building. Otherwise, it's not burglary. Hmm. Um, and so the very legal definition of burglary then just interested me as an architecture writer because the this thing that I have otherwise been writing about, like museum design, and ho- and housing and all the things associated with architecture, it has this weird flip side, which is that it legally generates a crime and and also forces people to tactically think through buildings in, a, in an interesting way. Um, and so I guess it was really kind of while talking to my editor, um, who I guess really at the time wasn't, he he was my soon-to-be editor, I should say, uh, you know, and, and he wanted me to pitch him a book, and I got really interested in trying to see where this might go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... It was really kind of, you know, I think I put together the book proposal and honestly about like a 45 minute just sort of caffeinated freak out of just like (laughs) writing, writing all the things that, that, that could go into it. And um, and 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 just I was just absolutely confident that, that that it could be a book and that it should be a book and that it wasn't a book already, which was which was fascinating to me. Um, you know, there, you know, there, it, it's such an architectural genre. The heist. You go to a heist movie and you see people pointing at floor plans or talking about how they're going to get from one room to the next or how to get out of one building and into the next. You know, th- questions that are just almost like embarrassingly simple, but have like huge amounts of drama built into them. Um, and yet there wasn't a book that focused on that, so that seemed really strange to me. Um, and so, yeah, that was, it was, it was something that I, I felt like there was a hole in the market, so to speak. It was something that would be incredibly fun to do. And, um, as far as research goes, um, you know, it's funny, my, my wife is also a writer and uh, is working on a book about refrigeration, um, which means that we are constantly visiting, because uh, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be a good husband, so I'm trying to help out with with uh, you know, holding microphones or notebooks and that kind of thing. Um, but so we go to a lot of refrigerated warehouses where I get unbelievably cold. <laughs> and uh, we, we've been joking about that you should always choose the book that you write based on where the research will take you. Um, and so in other words, don't write a book about refrigeration <laughs> if, uh, if, uh, if you can't ha- handle the cold. Um, So while I'm trying to convince her to write her next book about saunas at the beach, um, the the benefit of writing a book about burglary was that, you know, that meant I had this amazing excuse to try to get in touch with burglars, with, uh, you know, with criminals or reformed criminals, um, with police departments and sheriffs and and FBI uh, special agents, um, and to do things like learn how to lockpick and uh, see parts of the world that I wouldn't normally have been able to do. And so the research was amazing. It was a great excuse to be able to just go into places and make phone calls that, um, you know, I wouldn't have had, I guess you could say, the, you know, the, the, the spine to, to have done in a different context. And so I, that's not really quite the research question that I think you meant, but I felt like it was just a, it was a great way to kind of enter a labyrinth that I wouldn't otherwise have entered, you know, just with the excuse of saying I was writing a book about it.
1: Do you have a favorite piece of research that you did for this book, whether a person or an experience?
2: Um, I, I, guess, I think I do actually. I mean, there were there were there was so much that I enjoyed doing. Um, I mean, the one that I just genuinely liked, the I think probably the most actually was where I got to fly around at the LAPD's Air Support Division, um, which was just amazing, and um, I got to do it many many times actually. So. Um, to do both night flights and day flights. And, um, you know, the the idea there was that I wanted to, with the book, I wanted to to show this is how a burglar looks at the city, this is how a burglar looks at architecture, but this is also how detectives look at what burglars do, and this is how the FBI looks at the city to prevent the kinds of crimes that I'm investigating with with the book. And so it's kind of these two simultaneous ways of looking at the city and looking at infrastructure and looking at architecture. There's the preventing a crime angle and there's the committing a crime angle. And so I wanted to see what do cops see when they get up into the to these helicopters and fly around all night, you know, over a city where at the time I wasn't living here, so it was kind of in a um, alien environment. And I wanted to you know understand what it would look like from their through their eyes. And um, yeah, that was just incredible, you know, to to um, see connections between neighborhoods that I wouldn't no- otherwise have noticed. To get to talk to them about getaway routes and how to avoid um, police helicopter surveillance, like by a Going near LAX because often they can't get um, air, uh, air traffic control permission to fly near LAX, and so it's a good place to lose a police tail. Um, and then in terms of research too, it was interesting because you know I definitely started off uh, you know with no idea how to interview cops, and uh, I, you know I'm uh, I was pretty green in terms of um, reporting and I'm also a relatively enthusiastic person. So, you know, I'm asking all these ridiculous questions like, okay, so how do you get away? Like, you know, if I, if I just robbed a bank, like how do I get away from the cops? So, you know, um, how can, you know, you know like, are, is there a certain, like, is there an exit on the, on the, on the, on the 10 that I should take to, to make sure the helicopters can't follow me? I bet that went and, over. And really you, know, well. you could see them kind of looking behind them like in, into the backseat of the helicopter, like who the hell is this guy? <laughs> and, and how did he get permission to fly with the LAPD? Um, but so, you know, learning how to ask questions that were um, weren't so obviously uh criminally oriented uh was it was, was part of the the research and reporting aspect of this as well as well <laughs> uh, i
1: have so many questions i want to ask just about that but i will stay on script sir all right i'm not breaking any news by saying you've moved back to los angeles recently correct mm,
2: no uh, i don't think so okay yeah but it, that's true and you've bought a home here hmm may i ask How many burglar alarms do I have? No.
1: (laughs) But now I want to know, of course. I was just going to ask you, know, what did you learn while researching a book about burglary and space invasion that helped you to select and maybe even set up your own home without obviously giving away too many details to burglars that might be listening? Yeah, like
2: my address and when I tend not to be here. We will bleep that.
1: It's not happening. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Um, well, no, it's funny, actually. You know, I mean, a lot of people, um, you know, assume that when they come to visit me in my house or I was living in Brooklyn before this, you know, come to the apartment that, you know, they're going to be walking into kind of like a security showcase, you know, where I've got all <laughs> of the top of the line security locks on, or high security locks on the front door, you know, some kind of crazy like thermal imaging stuff uh, hidden in the corners, et cetera. Um, but I guess, I, I, I you know, there, there are just commonsensical things that a person can do to try to not get broken into. And I think that the one thing that I learned that, I'm, I'm perhaps overconfident in is that, you know, fundamentally you're trying to prevent someone who is on a spur of the moment sense that they can break into your house, get in there, steal something of value, and get out quickly. And if you give them even um, a tiny bit of doubt that this is the this is not the place to hit, it's almost like uh, Obi Wan Kenobi, like this is not the house you're looking for. <laughs> um, you know, then they're going to go to the next one, or they're going to go to the next street, or they're just going to they're they're going to get the heebie-jeebies and not break into your house. Um, And so if there's even just like a tiny bit of indication that either someone might be home or that things are arranged in a way that they're going to be seen getting into the house quite easily, um, it's, 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 I shouldn't say it's easy to avoid getting broken into, you know, the, the other joke is that while I was on the, uh, um, the book tour for this, you know, people would ask me the same question, but like, obviously the book tour is publicly available on the internet. So it's obvious that if you can find my address, which you can, if you do, if you know what, how to Google for it. Um, and you know that I'm in Seattle doing a book reading you know now's the perfect time to break into the house of the author of a burglar's Guide to the city opportunity and um so you know it's always it's always slightly nerve-wracking to answer that question because probably know there's someone in my house right now it's like a David <laughs> Lynch movie um, but yeah it's just little things like that so you know i it would be really easy physically easy to break into the house that I live in um but then the question is yeah is it legally worth it are you gonna steal anything worth you know i I don't want to denigrate our possessions, but we don't have a lot of things that would be particularly exciting to steal. Um, and then also, yeah, you would, all of our neighbors would see you going into the house, so there are just certain risks, you know what I mean? But it's not physically impossible to do it.
1: We have entered the speed round. Ooh, okay. Sir. All right. You look visibly nervous right okay. now. Here. I'm getting nervous. You're shaking a little. Palpitations. Bit. You, you'll be fine. Yeah. So, I'm just going to fling quotes at you from the book. Okay. There are lines and ideas that really struck me not simply as beautiful writing, but just really excellent kernels of ideas uh, that really made me think personally. And my hope is you'll just respond with, with whatever hits you. We don't necessarily need context, but if that, if that happens, then we'll do it. Do agree, sir? I concur. Okay. Wow. A quote from page 12, burglary is the original sin of the metropolis. Hmm.
2: Um, Yeah, I think with that, I was trying to communicate that burglary um, really is as old as cities. It's as old as architecture. The minute you have a structure, you have the potential to break into it. And I wanted to try to communicate this idea that, yeah, burglary is really hardwired into how we build, why we build. The very fact that we have doors, the fact that we try to separate ourselves from others um, sets up that possibility that someone will come along who won't pay attention to those divisions and will try to infiltrate what we have. Mm. Um, and, And cities are framed all throughout history with how to prevent other people from, um, yeah, from, from violating our, our sense of space or, or possession. And so, yeah, it's, it's always been present. It's the original sin.
1: Page 59. <laughs> <laughs> to focus on LA's legendary traffic is to miss a larger and stranger point that crime is often a more effective way to use the fabric of the city.
2: Um, yeah, that was in the that's in the chapter where looking at how the city was constructed and kind of the, these flaws that get um, designed and kind of ramified throughout the infrastructural fabric of, of of Los Angeles. So a great example of that is these things called stop and robs, um, which are banks or credit unions or, for that matter, any commercial uh, place it could be a bookstore um, that's at the bottom of an off ramp and at the bottom of an on ramp. And so you just stop and rob, and then you get back on the freeway. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know when transportation engineers were coming up with the freeway system and figuring out where to put them, and bank people came along and realized that it'd be very convenient to have a bank here because you can deposit your check after work <laughs> and go home, they were inadvertently setting up the fabric of the city for a crime spree, mm. um, you know, which was one of many reasons, but it was part of the reason why Los Angeles became the bank robbery capital of the world. in in the nineteen early 1990s, there was a bank robbery every forty five minutes of every workday. Um, and so, you know if if you look at how cities are built, And how they're connected through public transportation and freeways, and where that, where even just like how neighborhoods are connected together. Um, Sometimes a crime, a really well-executed crime, is a more effective way of of using that urban fabric, and and so that's what I was trying to communicate with that. Page ninety.
1: The internet has been a godsend to burglars.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so that's another thing that you know is is so easy to. Overlook, um, but um, you can see it if you if you go home tonight and Google your own address. Um, you you might find that um, some of the top hits are going to be things like Zillow or Redfin or Corcoran or you know other places that might rent out apartments and that kind of thing. Um, and so you can find an unbelievable amount of information about your own apartment. You know the, the place where we lived in Brooklyn, um, ironically, was in an earlier life had been the show apartment for um, the building that we moved into. And so there were actually even interior photographs that showed, you know, where, our, where the balcony was, where the, where the fuse box was. So somebody could shut off the power to the apartment. They could see where the kitchen was in relation to the front door, et cetera, et cetera. Um, There was a floor plan. So you can find out all this information just uh, through targeting, um, even just on real estate websites. And that's before you get into things like construction, uh, like Emporis, where you actually get the construction details. Um, There's one burglar who I I interview in the book um, who uh, pointed out that, you know, he would actually do really fine-grained research uh, before he hit certain kinds of buildings because he wanted to know literally what they're physically made out of. So is he going to be cutting through cinder block? Is he going to be cutting through um, two-by-fours? Is it just drywall? Um, Because he wants to show up with the right tools. He wants to know how loud it's going to be so that that way, you know, he can create a diversion somewhere so that people don't overhear him. But you can find out that kind of information through construction um, data websites. And so, yeah, the Internet has been a godsend for burglary.
1: Last one, and you have one minute. Okay. Page 103. His logic rests on the fabulous conclusion that, legally speaking, architecture is a form of magic one that has no place in an otherwise rational system?
2: Um, okay, yeah, that's a tough one to do in a less than a minute, but, but I'll try. So there's, a, there's an amazing uh, uh, theorist of burglary law who I quote from extensively in the book uh, who describes the fact that um, uh, crimes are legally amplified by taking place inside architecture, and if that incentivizes people to prove that someone was inside a building when they might not have been, and that, that comes down to little things like even a guy who was busted for having the tip of his finger crossing a windowsill when he was standing outside of a of a of a of a structure, and so that constituted entry. He was considered legally inside, and therefore he was he could be busted for burglary because of the nature of of his uh his criminal activity at the time. Um, but so architecture then becomes this kind of magical spell that you want to cast in a courtroom because if I can prove that you are inside something, even if you were on a screened in porch or maybe just walking by on the sidewalk, um I'm incentivized to narratively find a way to make a jury believe that you were inside, and then that uh, you'll spend more time in jail. Well played, sir. Thank well you, done. sir. <laughs>
1: This has been a live edition of the 1888 Center podcast, recorded at the 1888 Center in Orange, California, with Jeff Manon, author of A Burglar's Guide to the City, and guest hosted by Ryan Gaddis.
0: Thank you for listening to the 1888 Center podcast. Support our mission by subscribing, reviewing, or donating today. The show is produced by Kevin Stanek and Trevor Allred. Our music is composed and performed by Dan Record. Visit us in Old Town Orange, California, or online at 1888.center.